Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all of you who are tuning in to Undying Light. I am your host, Alex. And uh, new intro a little, just something, you know, kind of spurred off the beginning there. Kind of like it. Maybe we'll roll with it. I don't know. So no matter what time of day you're listening to this show, good times to you. And I am so blessed to have you listening because, you know, to me, there's nothing greater then coming across a good podcast that you can trust the host is going to give you unbiased and biblical doctrinal truth. And I can be honest with you. I, you know, I've been doing this for a couple of years now and I love doing it and I hope to continue to do it. But a while, long time ago, I was in the shoes of, I need to find a good Christian podcast. And I could not find one that was good. There just was not anything good. And this was probably about oh seven years ago now, maybe six. And um, so I, you know, I did a lot of fishing and uh, shout out to Doc and Devo, Joe Thorne and Jimmy Fowler, uh, where they were instrumental in helping me just really get into scripture. And they did such a tremendous job explaining doctrine. And they came at me with such tremendous topics. I actually even got the opportunity to have Joe Thorne on a show a long time ago. So, you know, I don't know why, uh, sometimes these, you know, these like weird thoughts, I didn't plan this, you know, when I was sitting here in the studio getting ready for the show, I didn't plan giving a shout out to Doc and Devo. Um, but I, I think they're, you know, they're, they're both great guys. I've been to two of their conferences and I absolutely love the people, um, that they get to the crowds that they get there and they produce fantastic content. And so, you know, for me, when I produce a show, I stay true to what I, um, you know, what I, what I step testify as. And, you know, for those of you who don't know, I am, uh, a pastor now and I'm pastoring a Lutheran church. And so you can probably, if you care not, then go ahead and turn off the mic or turn off your speakers, your car system, whatever, turn off the show now. Um, but 
you know, at the end of the day, I'm going to stay true to my faith and I'm going to stay true to what I think is true. And uh, I'm going to keep delivering you uh, true biblical content and uh, I won't beat around the bush with things. So, but I just thought, you know, was thinking about that, you know, just a few minutes ago. It's just like, you know, how hard is it to find good podcasts out there that are consistent in their production and bring you reliable and trustworthy content? And, and I think it really shows, and look, I'm not bribing about this show by any means, but I, I think it goes to show in the long run how consistent we have been on, on Dying Light producing episodes, but, it, you know, and how honest I've been through this whole eschatology series that there is such a monumental amount of work. It's the mountain is so tall. The caverns are so deep. There's so much knowledge out there that we're not even scratching the service with the, you know, 50, 60 some hours that we've already put into the show. Um, or by the time I think we'll be done with it, 55 or six hours or something like we'll get up to 60 hours. Maybe I don't know, but we've produced a lot. Um, I think this will be episode 27 or eight in this series. So, you know, if you figure, you know, average 50 minutes to an hour per show already, you're at 27, 28 hours. And, uh, that doesn't begin to even touch the topic. I mean, just on the book of revelation alone, I have four commentaries that give me different perspectives for, and I, that's not even like, that's not even touching the surface. There's tons and tons of books. And, you know, if we caught last week's show, you'll know kind of the struggle that some of the reformers or even modern preachers have picking on revelation because it's such a complex book. Now, if we look at uh, the Olivet Discourse, or we look at Pauline eschatology, and we look at all these other things, you know, stuff through the Old Testament, there's, you know, a number of books written, but you'll find more books written on the four major views, dispensationalism, uh, dispensational premillennialist, historical premillennialist, postmillennialist, and the amillennialist, or revealed eschatology. You'll find far more books written on those than you will, like, you know, eschatology in the flood like you'll find articles and things maybe some table talks um but i had to dig and dig and dig into that stuff to pull out the content that i was able to do for the show and so if you are listening to undying life for the first time and you've made it five minutes into me rambling congratulations and thank you for tuning in today we are going to tackle part two of revelation and as I had mentioned, we're doing seven major parts and inside of each part is three like sub parts. So each part will be made up of three sub parts. So we're still in part one, but we're in like sublet part two way to confuse you guys right off the bat. Not even kidding here. So that's just what I'm good for. So, um, for those who are Patreons though, the show, they've already had uh, 20 some minutes of pre-show they had uh, sent some questions and did a little video Q&A for them, and they'll be able to watch this show actually, you know, being recorded as I, you know, record my voice for you to listen to it in your car. So Patreons get the video shot of it, and then the world gets the audio. Now, you can join us for Patreon, and for as little as a dollar a month, you can support this show and become part of this ministry and this family and get all this really cool stuff and join us for Bible studies and group chats and get in on Q&As and private Zoom meetings and all that jazz with me. And uh, really, 
it it's a dollar well spent honestly uh ask any one of the patreons they uh, they would attest to it they are great people and i love every single one of them so anywho's so we got a bunch of stuff to talk about tonight we're going to cover a lot of ground and uh i hope to do it within our hour time frame because it is a my it is a tremendously busy week for me so if you don't know and you live under a rock this is holy week and in some traditions that means there is a church service on thursday church service on friday and a church service on sunday in some traditions or some uh, denominations in bigger churches there's probably two services on friday and three or more services on the weekend one on saturday three or something on sunday uh we don't have that thank god i have one thursday one friday and one sunday um maybe in the future we can do two on sunday do like a sunrise service but that's once you know we got to get to a point where we can grow the church that big for it so anywho that means it's a busy week and i've got both of my sermons for thursday and friday written and i just finished fridays this evening which is great and uh sundays is in going to be in the process writing here starting tomorrow um oh yeah i have church tomorrow night too and church friday night so i am i've literally been in front of a computer screen since sunday at like noon um the only time i had got away from it was tuesday when i had to uh, take a little field trip with my wife and daughter so here we are ladies and gentlemen we are going to pick up uh, verse 9 in the first chapter of the book of revelation and we're going to talk through some of the stuff we're going to actually look at the first two letters to the churches tonight and then we will pick back up next week uh, and look at uh, the rest of the church letters and a little bit more um, and see where we will end up we'll actually get all the way through chapter 3 verses 22 so we should be able to finish right up to the end of chapter three next week so three episodes three shows or uh three three shows three uh chapters in revelation so a lot of good content there and we are just moving through it and uh, again this is not extensive so by all means pick up some commentaries grab some books on book of revelation dig into it come up with what you come up with and uh you know make your own uh make your own decision because uh that's what we're we're all here for it's is not uh, primary theology by any means this is just kind of you know um secondary and uh it's fun you know it's fun to dig into and try to extract the nuggets so i'm going to take a big swig of water real quick and i'm going to get us ready to go uh last week we talked about jesus being the victor and um, that basically this book is his revealed eschatology um this is the beginning of the end essentially that was what we titled the show we are starting this whole process with um this book and so we will unpack it we will go through some of this some of these difficult doctrines and we will see what we come up with so jesus is the victor that is um the premise that we will carry through all of this show and uh Let's begin. Verse 9. 
I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches at Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, into Sardis, into Philadelphia, into Laodicea. Then I turned and saw see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like the Son of Man, clothed like with a long robe, with a gold sash around his chest, and hairs on his head were white like white wool like snow his eyes were like flame of fire his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters first of all we're going to stop here because this has got uh, verses uh, 13 through 16 here just before we continue i want to make one clear point Uh, hebrew israelites like to take this text right here and use this as an attack verse to say that Jesus is a black man and they use these frameworks that he has burnished bronze feet and uh, his hair is white and you know well who can be who can have dark feet and white hair well that's an old black man and excuse my language if that's not what you want to be called but they are quite vulgar in themselves and they are very hateful and despiteful individuals the problem that they run into is that they will um, use this so often and they have no context because we will see how this actually is not a literal interpretation of jesus christ and uh, we cannot just sit and um allow this to happen to scripture we can't allow this type of abuse to happen so it's a pet peeve of mine and it drives me nuts when i see people ripping verses out and just absolutely distorting and destroying their context all right verse 16 in his right hand he held seven stars okay so literally right here if he was a literal he would be holding stars in his hands all right seriously stars okay from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword okay now it sounds like he's a circus act because if you're taking what he said a few minutes ago as literal then you have to take verses 16 as literal too he's pointing sword out of his mouth come on people get with the program and his face was like the sun shining in full strength and that's where they lose him because guess what hebrew Israelites, that would mean jesus's face is literally the sun <sighs> all right oh those they just bug me so much they're like his there ugh. when i saw him i fell on my fell at his feet as though dead but he laid his right hand on me saying fear not i am the first and the last and the living one i died and behold i am alive forevermore and i have the keys to hades and death write therefore the things that you have seen those that are and those that are to take place after this as for the mystery of the seven stars that you have saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are 
the seven churches. All right. So we, the way revelation sometimes works and the way some scripture really in general in the new Testament works is we're given this piece of scripture and then it's later explained down the road. Or sometimes we're given an explanation to something and then later down the road we see it. So case in point, we have it right here. We have um, in verse 12, the, the seven lampstands, but we get an explanation for it down here in verse 20. So we will not, you know, double track ourselves here as we go through this text because we will look at uh, the seven lampstands and the seven stars entirely. So all right, chapter two. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand walks among the seven lampstands. I know your words. I'm sorry. I know your works, you, your toil and your patience endurance and how you cannot bear with those that are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have grown, not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's our first letter. And sometimes I get a little sniffly down here in the studio. I wanted to get maybe like one of those uh, humidifiers or something. <laughs> Sorry for all you listening. Here's a little blooper for you. I'll give you that. Verse 8. And to the angel at the church of Smyrna, right? The words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. But he who has an he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit of the church, what the spirit says to the church is the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. All right. That is the context for today's show. So we have two church letters and we have kind of the vision of the son of man. So that's what we're going to look at today. So first of all, we get this picture of John. Uh, this section opens here with uh, the representative, representative, if you would, uh, for all the Christian people. And that is I, John, not me physically, but John in, the, in Revelation here, uh, your brother and partner. John does not set himself apart as an apostle, but proclaims solidarity with his readers. What he's experienced on Patmos is typical of what all other believers will experience. John sums up his experience in three terms, in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patience and the patient endurances that are in Jesus. John centers his experience on the kingdom of Christ. This fits with earlier emphasis, highlighting Jesus as the ruler of the kings on earth, who he has made believers a kingdom 
priests to his God and Father, as we talked about verses 5 and 6 of last week. Christ reigns wherever his word is believed and obeyed. So this is how we start the framework, right? We get this concept of who uh, is writing us this letter. This is John. He's stuck on the island of Patmos. He's actually a prisoner, completely disempowered. And he's so far as the world is concerned and subject to apparent control of his captors. In fact, however, he has um, possessed the power of Christ to reign and triumph over sin and death or sin and unbelief. However, adverse our worldly circumstances may be we too are free to reign with christ through faith and obedience in his word so john is captive here on this island and in this he still is possessed with christ he is still doing everything he can to you know if if we don't know if there's other prisoners we we assume that there might have been but he's, you know, it, it says here that he was caught up in the spirit. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So he's praying, he's meditating on on what he has learned through his life. We know that this is uh, closer to the end of his life. Um, we don't think he was a young buck by the time this happens, but he does, I think, live a little bit longer after this because uh, I believe he does come back from the island for a short period of time after this book is written. So, um, our full experience in Christ's kingdom yet remains ahead, coming to us only when Jesus returns from heaven. Uh, Even though believers now reign on earth through faith, there yet remains for us this crown of righteousness, which the Lord will uh, award us on that day, as 2 Timothy writes. Only when Christ returns to consummate the kingdom fully will we experience the fullness of power blessings and glory befitting to those who John writes are his partners in the kingdom. So we, John continues here that, uh, most significantly we receive the kingdom in Jesus. So Alexander McLaren writes, when we put up the reins into his hands, when we put our consciousness into his keeping, when we take his law from his gentle and yet sovereign lips, and when we let him direct our thinking, when his word is absolute truth that ends all controversy, then we experience the kingdom in and through faith in Jesus. So I would agree. I think as we move forward in this life, as we have our faith given to us, we can truly see and understand the kingdoms of christ we have that faith and we get to experience that while not the new heavens and new earth we do get to experience a little bit of his love and compassion for us his mercy and his tenderheartedness that he shows to his believers it doesn't mean that we won't suffer because we do experience trials just as john here is writing from being an imprisoned uh, person on the island of patmos we experience that We've had numbers of Christians over the centuries uh, who were martyred for their faith. So it's not uncommon that a Christian suffers and dies. But we know that we get to taste a little bit of this wonderful kingdom that Christ has in store for us. And the commentary actually here really suits this, this particular quote. It says, Christians should not be surprised by trials 
as though something strange were happening to you, as First Peter 4 remarks. Uh, Paul Murray writes, contrary to some modern prosperity teaching, membership of Christ's kingdom does not shield us from suffering. Rather, for John and his readers, membership of the kingdom was the cause of their suffering. This was John's testimony concerning himself. He was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John shows that the faithful Christian will not shrink from proclaiming the truth of God's word and the gospel message of Jesus, but will accept persecution for it. John did not conform his life to his witness or his witness to fit with the times and precisely his, this faithful conduct. He was a partner in the tribulation. I think that echoes what Paul writes in uh, Romans, not to be conformed by the patterns of this world, but to be renewed in our mind by the word of God. As I paraphrase that, that is exactly what we experience as Christians. We are obviously caught into this whirlwind these days of this prosperity movement where we think that we are going to have this luxurious and perfect life and yada, 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 but it's all a bunch of fooey. Because truth is, we will suffer, we will get sick, we will be made fun of, we will be persecuted, mocked, scolded, hated, we will have our family split, we'll lose our children, our parents, our spouse even, because of our gospel. Because we cling to the gospel of Christ. So, the question to ask yourself really at this juncture is, is it worth it? Is it worth losing everything in this world and still counting it all for gain for Christ? Absolutely it is. Let's move on. We are going to um, pick up here this little section, as I would call it. Uh, it takes us all the way through the verse 16, so we're going to kind of cover some ground here. We are approaching the inaugural vision of Revelation as typical for all Christians, just as John has described and shared Christian experience. He receives the ministry of, and uh, in his trials that all Christians need, John reports that he heard a loud voice like a trumpet that he turned and saw the vision of Christ as the exalted son of man. Now, interestingly enough, if you remember um, back in uh, Matthew 17, I think it was Mark 9, maybe, yeah, I think Mark 9, um, and I uh, forget the text in Luke, but the um, transfiguration where John was a part with James and Peter going up to the side of the mountain to see the transfigured Lord. Uh, it doesn't really say here in the book of Revelation whether the appearance is white. We do get some same clarities that um, he was shining with bright whites that uh, we couldn't even bleach to be that white. Uh, as you recount the transfiguration context. So we get a little bit more detailed uh, notes here. And so we see uh, potentially the same um, vision, same appearance, but maybe a little bit more defined now that the resurrection has occurred. I don't know, something to maybe chew on in your mind for the next couple of days. And that's what I'm good for. So John describes this situation here, right? He's in the Lord's day. He's in spirit on the Lord's day. And behind him, he hears this loud voice like a trumpet. Um, by in the spirit, uh, as I had mentioned earlier, he's in a trance-like visionary state. Um, this is not, you know, some spiritual experience, though, that is common to all believers. But it's given to God's special messengers as a reference back to Ezekiel. 
A New Testament example is Peter falling into a trance and seeing the vision of animals uh, that he was able to slay and eat, as noted in Acts chapter 10. So he's taken up on this in the spirit on the Lord's day. <clears throat> and this uh, is the Bible's only use of the expression, the Lord's day for the Christian day of worship. Um, obviously we would uh, hold to this being on Sunday. The new Testament notes that the apostles moved the day of worship from the Jewish Sabbath, seventh day Sabbath, uh, that was on Saturday and changes it to Sunday in recognition of the resurrection of the risen Lord. So we can imagine uh, John is grazing longingly towards the north where his church would be gathering on, uh, in Ephesus. Perhaps he is praying for their worship. Uh, he could be praying for, you know, the gospel to be proclaimed and more people to come and hear it. And, uh, so we don't really get to see anything like that, but you know, so it's kind of purely speculative really here on, uh, on what's going on with John. Interestingly enough though, that some argued, uh, some commentators argue, uh, that this description here that we get of Jesus as like the son of man, quote unquote, merely means that he appeared in human form. Uh, when we remember how closely John drew his material from the visions of Daniel, however, we find a more exalted meaning. We noted uh, back in uh, Revelation 1-7 that John drew uh, this vision from Daniel 7. So we will uh, we revisited that very briefly last week uh, when he spoke of Jesus coming in the clouds. The same vision uh, that we also talked about coming up in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus splits the clouds and appears. So in Daniel 7, though, it concludes with God as the ancient of days to whom there came like one, uh, a son of man riding on the clouds. So Daniel seven thirteen shows us that. Uh, Matthew 24 tells us that as well. And now here we are in Revelation 1. We get that as well. So it's kind of a continual theme that we will see the clouds shatter or split open. And then all of a sudden, Jesus Christ will appear. The Son of Man does not, therefore, don't denote the mere humility of Jesus, but rather the fact that this one in the form of man is really God. According to Daniel, the son of man is the one worthy to receive dominion and glory in a, and a kingdom of all peoples, nations, and languages to serve him. So this is monumental to understand that Christ is the one who is worthy of this Christ is worthy of all power and glory and rule. So what mattered most to John here was not that the will of the demonitin, but the will of Christ. If Jesus desired to set John free, then just as Peter was delivered from Herod's jail by an angel in Acts 12, so would John be free to return to Ephesus. As he soon did, according to the early church historian Eusebius, but even if John remained in exile, that would not keep God's word from going forth from him in power. Paul wrote from prison uh, that he was bound in chains as a criminal, but added that the word of God is not bound. 
in Second uh, Timothy. So even if John remained on this island until he died, that would not have stopped the gospel from moving forward. The gospel would still continue. So now we get uh, the savior of a, as a priest, a king, and a prophet. And as we consider these further details here from the vision of John, we should remember of what we saw, what Jesus is like. The vision does not show us what Jesus looks like, but what uh, rather that Jesus is like symbolically depicting his person and work. Biblically trained Christians organize the work of Christ into three offices, prophet, priest, and king. This is indeed a good way to understand this vision here that uh, John is writing about, starting with Jesus as the true high priest of his people. John saw Jesus clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest, reminding us that the garments made for the high priest of Aaron and his sons, mentioned in uh, Exodus 28 and Leviticus 16.4. The Jewish historian Josephus uh, describes the priestly robes by using Greek word that John employs for Christ's long robe, which is, I'm going to probably butcher this, so forgive me, uh, podir or, or podur. I'm not a Greek. Um, I'm not proficient in Greek, so forgive me. If you've listened to me long enough, you'll know that, so I butcher some words. Uh, adding that the embroidered girdle was uh wound around the body further the vision of an embroidered christ standing among the golden lampstands calls i uh, recalls the priest who served in the temple and kept the lamps alight so second this vision of jesus as the true king and reigning king um, the feet of brownished bronze refined in the furnace are those of the conqueror who treads earth in power his eyes like the flame of fire, and those who pierce every heart to judge according to truth. Christ rules the world, which goes forth from his mouth like a two-edged sword. While the glory of his royal face is like the shining of the sun in full strength, here is a king fit to rule, able to conquer, all knowing to judge, and all glorious to demand our worship. That is how you understand the vision of Christ here. This is not a literal interpretation because nowhere in scripture would we even begin to understand this. And this is why we said last week in the episode that there is going to be text in here that we can take literally. And then there's going to be text that we have to take uh, symbolically or as a representation of uh, because the text here, um, if we look back, we don't get anything that would indicate a um, actual depiction of. And so the problem with like the black Israelites that like to take this text and use it as a literal interpretation they actually strip all of the context out. Because in verse 13, into the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man clothed with, long, with a long robe with a golden sash on his chest. The hairs were white. Um, it, it loses its understanding if you just say that this is a literal interpretation. Because, again, as I had mentioned earlier in the show, that would mean his, uh, his eyes were literally fire. His face was literally the sun. His feet are bronze. And swords are coming out of his mouth. <laughs> it just doesn't, doesn't work 
you know, in, in the sense of that. Uh, so third, this vision presents Jesus as a great prophet whose word is a double edged to save those who believe and to slay those who refuse to uh, refuse their faith. Now, if we look back in Daniel 10, uh, the prophet met an angelic visitor described similarly to Christ in this vision, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from you, uh, Yopez around his waist. His body was like a braille. His face was like the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and legs, like the gleam of bronzed of burnished bronze and the sound of his words, like the sound of the multitude. That messenger brought Daniel good news of great hope for salvation, a message that pointed forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus now appears as the substance of that good news, and they commissioned John to declare this to the seven churches. So before we um, move into the uh, understandings here of the seven churches and the golden lampstands, we do come again to a point where we will declare that this is the gospel, that Christ is the gospel. There's a word that captures the meaning of Christ as priest, king, and prophet. That is the gospel. This is what John needed to uh, needed in his exile. Christ in his glorious divine person and good news of Christ and his saving work. Christ as priest reconciles sinners to God through his blood. Christ as king conquers and judges with the two-edged sword. And Christ as a prophet appears with a hopeful message of saving grace. This good news, the Bible-saving message centered on the person and work of Christ is precisely what everybody needs today. Both of those who have believed and those who have not. So now we move into the seven lampstands and the seven stars. It is obvious that these lampstands and John's vision signify the churches that belong to Jesus. We see this as the number of churches mentioned in uh, Revelation 111, and it corresponds to the lampstands here in verse 12. So there is a lot of material to cover here. There's a ton, a ton, a ton of material to cover in these lampstands, but I'm going to try um, to walk us through this quickly and uh, because we're already at 37 minutes in the show and we still have the letters to get to and uh, I want to make sure that we get through all of this. So uh, the lampstands that John saw remind us of the golden menorah that Mo, uh, Moses placed in the tabernacle to symbolize the light of the Lord. Uh, John's vision here corresponds closely to the vision of these golden lampstands from Zechariah chapter 4. A prophetic, uh, The prophet saw a vision of two olive trees from which pipes carried oil to a seven-boiled lamp. So there's a lot of symbolical prophetic symbolizing uh, that goes back to Zechariah, goes back to Moses. So this is not something uncommon to John. This wouldn't be something that is alarming. This is not anything that would be, you know, new and, and out of the ordinary form. So John saw the church represented not only by seven lampstands, but also by the seven stars held in Jesus's hand. Verse 20 explains, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw my right hand, uh, the seven stars are the angels to the, ch to the seven churches. So there's considerable debate on the identity of these angels with two views being most likely. 
the first view is that the angels are the pastors who serve and lead the seven churches. There are two reasons for this view. First, the Greek word for angel, anglios, means messenger. So John could be taken as writing that the seven stars are the messengers to the seven churches. That is the pastors who deliver God's word. Second, this view notes that the seven letters in Revelations 2 and 3 are addressed to the angels of the respective churches. For instance, 2 1 says to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Since these letters contain rebukes for sin, it does not make sense that the actual angels would be being addressed, but rather pastors who do sin and fall short of the duty of Christ. Scholars who take this view urge the title. Uh, Angel hopefully reminds us that faithful pastors are God's servants and messengers, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4.11. Nonetheless, it is unlikely that Christ is referring to a human messenger here for the simple reason that elsewhere in Revelation, the word angel also describes the supernatural messenger and heavenly servant of God. It is probably best then to see that John or that Jesus is referring to guardian angels assigned to the churches they represent. This fits the pattern in Daniel's vision, uh, which John repeatedly uh, refers to, in which the angel spoke of this combat with the enemy. Spiritual powers are referred to the angel Michael as your prince, uh, as Daniel 10.21. So the idea here of heavenly counterparts of Jesus, or of God's early people, seems to be reflected in these seven stars in Christ's hands. These lampstands on earth and the stars in heavens will shine their light. And it seems that the angels of these churches are closely identified with the churches themselves, that those two are spoken as one. And so between these two views, so the first view is that there are, uh, that the angels being referred to are pastors. The second view is that the people being referred to, uh, or the uh, angels being referred to are actual guardian angels over these seven churches. And so there's a lot of conversation about why just the seven churches, why, you know, I mean, obviously we have more churches and more, um, even in this time period, right? We have, we have more churches than these seven, but these were the seven most prominent and, uh, biggest churches, uh, that had the most influence in this particular time frame, And so these were kind of established as the, the original churches to which the gospel sprang forth from. So as we move here now into uh, verses 17 through 19, uh, we're going to close out here uh, chapter 1 here in a couple of minutes. So this opening vision of Revelation uh, vividly presents the main actors in history. First, we see Christ as the sovereign son of man who reigns in triumph over all. Second, the church is depicted as a precious value, as a golden lampstand that shines Christ's light. And third, John himself represents the people uh, who are saved by Christ. So now let's focus on him as it's starting to realize that when he saw Christ's glory, he fell as though he were dead. Readers who are not well versed in the Bible might find it strange that an apostle fell apart in Jesus's presence. But in fact, really what we get is John is depicting how sinners always respond to a true vision of the holiness of Christ, whether in person or in the pages of scripture. Given that way that Revelation follows the visions of Daniel, 
We should note that the ancient prophet had a similar experience. Daniel Daniel, in chapter 10 records a vision identical to that of Revelation 1, causing Daniel to lose all of his strength and collapse to the ground. So this is not an uncommon occurrence. Again, uh, simple biblical readings, which would see how what John did here um, is not any different. And interestingly enough, um, on the road to Damascus, Paul kind of has the same occurrence. But uh, Paul's experience, obviously, is a little different than Daniel and John's. Paul was going to go and arrest more Christians and persecute them before he meets Christ and is commanded to go do other things. So the Bible indicates two reasons why men are slain in the presence of God's glory. First of all, let's clarify one thing before I give you these two instances. This is not a Bethel or Hillsong or or whatever, you know, charismatic slain in the spirit. This is not a, you know, a make-believe Holy Spirit moment where people are just falling over and laughing uncontrollably. No, John literally fell at his feet as though he were dead because he experienced the true Christ, not some make-believe garbage that your charismatic pastor is shoving down your throat. All right, so the first two things. The first is the awe of creatures in the presence of the divine. Job cries out, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in the dust and ashes. This overwhelming experience in seeing the Lord is in glory is especially striking to the case of John, since he was the disciple loved most by Jesus and the most intimate in friendship with the Lord, who is now revealed in him a divine splendor. So John, uh, the John of Revelation is a mature disciple, long schooled in godliness and commanded for his faithfulness under persecution. That John should fall as though dead before the glorified Christ, therefore amplifies the uh, significance of the Lord's majesty. Spurgeon gives us this explanation. He says, The most spiritual and sanctified minds, when they fully perceive the majesty and holiness of God, are so greatly conscious of the great disportion between themselves and the Lord that they humble themselves and, filled with the holy awe and even with dread, and alarm. Uh, the famous episode from the life of Martin Luther provides a great example of terror of the holy. After several years of training as a monk, Luther uh, was authorized to celebrate his first mass as a Roman Catholic priest. He stepped to the altar and prepared to speak uh, the Latin words that would supposedly turn the elements of the body and blood of Christ into um or from the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And at that moment, however, Luther froze solid. Years later, and this is what Luther says, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my eyes to such divine majesty? The angels surround him, and at his nod the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this? I ask for that? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin. And I am speaking to the living, eternal, true God. That's powerful. And Luther just comes right at it. Comes just 
blazing in. Whew. So when we consider biblical examples, believers falling dead, the Lord, a common element is their awareness of personal sinfulness. Isaiah was undone because he confessed, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Job uh, condemned himself when he saw God after chapters of complaining about the Lord. And perhaps the clearest example is the Apostle Peter when he first perceived the deity of Jesus. Peter had been fishing when he saw Jesus, or when Jesus asked him to preach from uh asked him to preach from his boat because of the large crowds afterwards jesus told peter where the place uh where to place the nets and when peter obeyed they filled the the, uh fish to the point of breaking the nets through these events peter perceived the divine majesty of christ and like john on patmos he fell down at jesus knees and then pleaded department for me i am a sinful man O lord Receiving the holiness of Christ, Peter is immediately overthrown by the terrifying comprehension of his own sins. And so we see this continuous mark through Scripture when Christ comes into the picture. When man experiences Christ, he's completely overwhelmed by his, by first the majesty and second by their sin. Christ's majesty and man's sinful nature. But the wonderful thing here is that Christ does not leave you there. He does not leave John in the dust. He does not leave Paul or Peter or Job in the dust. In fact, what we get here is fear not. I am the first and the last. I love this text. With this in mind, perhaps the most important statement about John was not that he did fall down as though he were dead but where he did it at jesus's feet and instead of turning away from god in severe terror and ungodly fear that loathes god he turned to the lord with reverent humility and the fear of the lord and at the feet of jesus is always the safest most blessed place in the world i'm probably gonna maybe i don't know get some uh interesting comments on this but i am uh, I'm a big uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman fan, and uh, there's there's a song that he sings, and you can go and look it up. It's called "At the Feet of Jesus." Go and listen to that song. I love it, and and I grew up listening to Chapman, and I, you know, some of his songs are you know can be a little bit soft. Some of them are really good, but it it, it is well worth your well worth your time to listen to that song i uh i think it's i think it's wonderful all right so we we get this picture that christ is no longer dead he has overcome that death and so we see him make this statement fear not that i am uh i am the first and the last i am the alpha and the omega beginning to the end and the living one I died and behold, I live forevermore. And that just to me continues to signify the God that we serve. This is truly, truly a magnificent Lord and Savior because we get to experience this. Not only that, but we get to see through the eyes of John exactly what 
what it is that we will get to partake in. And so, and in the living one here, not always referring just to his resurrection, but also to his capacity to impart eternal life to others. I am, I am alive forevermore. The living one. He's the one that gives you eternal life. He resurrected from the dead, which we will celebrate in a couple of days from the era of this episode. And he is the one that brings you eternal life. That is just, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> it's just, that's so amazing. And so we can look at these verses here, John, uh, that John writes here in uh, verses 9 through 20. John describes this awesome vision of the risen and exalted Christ. Jesus in such an imposing figure that John instinctively falls down before him, trembling with fear. We should surely react the same way in his presence. But Christ is not merely about overwhelming power and glory. See, he made us like, he made a, uh, he was made like us in every way except without sin. Having overcome death in the grave, he now promises to share his eternal life and glory with us. I think that's a beautiful way to sum up this big chunk of text here. All right. So now let's get to these seven letters because this is, this is the bulk, right? So now we got seven messages or seven, um, seven letters here going out to these churches and, um, we are going to get into the midst of it. So also too, this is where we can get into some twisted scripture. We can get into some manipulated and poorly understood scripture. Um, but we can't understand that there's some specific context that these are written to and can any, and then we'll explore, can anything actually be applied to us? So let's uh, dig into that. So, these so-called seven letters to the churches in Revelation are not actually letters. Uh, instead, they are really just a form, a virtual portion of the book of Revelation, uh, which forms a single letter to the churches. Note, for instance, that these messages are not divided and sent to the respective, respective churches, but rather they are sent together and to be read out loud. So think about that for a minute. These weren't just, you know, it wasn't like Paul writing to the church in Rome or, you know, the church at Ephesus. This is uh, collected documents that John's writing and he's just making notes to this church, do these things to this church, do this. And so he's collectively putting this all together to go out to all of the churches. So the entire book of revelation will be included in the canon of scripture and be meant for all seven of these churches. Therefore, as, as with the rest of canon for us as well today. So that's kind of something interesting to uh, kind of keep in your head and kind of mull it over, right? All right, so the seven messages follow a format. Christ, one, praises the churches and then points out areas of repentance. And then three, warns the churches of his judgment and four, promises blessings to those who ever overcome in his name. So each of these letters also begins with a description of Christ that is drawn from the wisdom uh, from a vision in chapter one. These descriptions connect the seven messages to the book of Revelation as a whole, just as the continued use of the images throughout this book 
that these letters apply to the entire history it represents. So the first message that we have goes to the church in Ephesus, and it begins like this. The words to him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. At the end of this message, Christ will threaten to come and remove the church's lampstand. He thus begins by reminding Ephesus, or reminding the Ephesians, more or less, of his sovereignty over the place of his realm. Moreover, Jesus presents himself as standing amid the churches whom, star, whom the stars he holds in his hand. Thus he says, I know. We see that he has and is presented with his people, even though he is unseen. In this way, Christ is the good shepherd of his flock. He sets a good example for other sh- uh, under shepherds. Jesus is present with his church, and he's interested in and involved with them. So, case in point for anybody who's a pastor and listening to this show, how involved Christ was and as involved as we should be. I mean, me as a pastor, I should be involved in every element of decision making in my church. I should be involved in everything. I should know all of the things going on. Does it require my approval or attention all the time? Probably not. But I need to know what is happening, how the church is moving uh, fluidly, if you would. So we move on here and we get to this, uh, to the second juncture of how Christ sets up his letters. So remember, we'll come back a few times and we'll look at how he praises the churches. He points them out for repentance, warns them of judgment, and then promises a blessing if they overcome. So the first of Christ's messages is directed to the church at Ephesus. It's a leading city in Asia and is the gateway to the Roman Empire. It is now in a region known as Turkey, with the rivers and roads connecting it to uh, far flung places, far flung places. Ephesus was famous for its large harbor, a flourishing marketplace, and especially the great Temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven ancient wonders, uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. It is a desolate and greatly, uh, yeah, desolate and greatly immoral city in large part because of its uh, cultic prostitution and liberty granted to criminals at its famous temple. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of evil going on here too. So this was a bad city, but this was a, you know, we'll judge by the, you know, what Christ says here to the church, but, uh, there is a church planted here that Christ addresses. Uh, so the church in Ephesus is now in a second generation of uh, congregation, having been founded about 40 years earlier by Paul, who later stayed and taught there for three years during a long, uh, during his long third mission trip. It is now overseen. Uh, it was then overseen by Paul's helper, Timothy, until after Paul's death and the apostle John came. Uh, so, in the episodes of Paul, we talked about his death approximately around the year 66 AD. Uh, Paul wrote one of his greatest epistles to the church of Ephesians together with two of his pastoral epistles, first and second Timothy. When from uh, Ephesus comes the gospel of John in addition to John's three epistles. So Ephesus has a lot of history and we're not even deep into the church history you know, we're not even a hundred years and Ephesus is already a major player, uh, in this church. So not only 
have the Ephesians performed good works in Christ's names, but they preserved patiently under trials. I know your patient endurance. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This uh, commemoration indicates not merely that they will, that they had continued in believing, but that they had stood up to the pressure to conform to surrounding culture. And so it's interesting here, right? As we uh, talked previously on the show that these churches uh, will experience persecution. And we talked about how we are to withstand that persecution, not to be conformed to the world. And so Christ is commemorating these guys saying, Hey, you did exactly what you were supposed to do. And he commands them, he commends them for their uh, vigilance for the truth. I know you, I, I know how you cannot bear with those that are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and who have been found to be false. So overseers of the culture today note that Christianity's main offices in the way of our faith will not yield to the claims of other viewpoints. And many urge believers to relax our excessive stance and to accommodate worldly perspectives and embrace a more uh, palatable attitude towards matters such as gender, sexuality, and the claims of science over the Bible. In this way, it is argued Christians will get along better and receive a less hostile hearing. There are two great errors in this advice, however. The first error is failing to realize that this is unyielding attitude that has always been the stance of faithful Christians. Almost a century ago, uh, John Gresham Mackin, I think that's his last name, wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism, in which he argued against the demands of Christians, or argued against the demands for Christians to embrace a secularist worldview. He answered by pointing out that the stand for excessive biblical truth was the very thing that caused early Christians trouble in the Roman Empire. So the Ephesians are standing strong and they are not crumbling here to the world. However, Christ reminds them that they have fallen and failed to remember their first love. This is a serious problem. I have against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So this rebuke is understood in two ways. So many commentaries hear Jesus saying that their zeal for correct doctrine, the Ephesians have become unloving towards other people. Hmm. Well, that's a shocker. Seems like the pride of knowledge and the pride to be right has superseded their love. Sadly, this is a big common problem with many Christians even today, where the desire to be right supersedes the desire to just love people. That doesn't mean you need to compromise. It doesn't mean you need to allow them to, you know, assert themselves as being right over in a situation or an argument or, or, you know, give up the argument, but you can do it in a loving manner. So in the early days here in, in Ephesus, they were warmly embraced all those who named the Lord in faith, but their zealous orthodoxy has made them suspicious and harsh. Now the second view sees this as a rebuke as changing 
the Ephesians had a growing cold in their love for Jesus and their zeal for a close relationship with him. It's likely both are involved, though, especially since the loss of love for God will result in a less fervent affection for fellow Christians. This poses a serious challenge for doctrinally-minded people. Jesus rebukes, does not say that zeal for truth must always make our love grow cold, but it certainly indicates that it is possible. And this is why Paul warns, if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge and I have all of the faith, so as I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. That's some, that's, that's powerful because if we, to truly understand all of this, to understand this rebuke that Christ is giving, this is, this is monumental to the church today that these individuals have lost their zeal for love. They have lost what it means to just show compassion it doesn't mean we compromise. It doesn't mean we need to allow somebody else to be doctrinally right. What it does allow is for us to display to them our love. And if we fail to do that, then we've failed everything altogether as Christians. And so we come to the last element here. The final element in the seven in the seven messages is this promise from Christ for a blessing to those who conquer through faith to the ones who conquers. I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is the paradise of God to conquer uh, with Christ does not mean that all of our difficulties will go away or that believers can expect to become thin, beautiful, healthy and wealthy and prosperous and all this stuff. No, what it means is that Christians conquering by persevering until the end in faith, godliness, and truth, and fervent love, this is the chief message to the entire book of Revelation. And so those who make it to the end, those who conquer that, will be able to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Uh, it's pretty It's pretty substantial. And uh, so... Um, we should be heeding these because this is a message that can really hit hard for a lot of Christians. This is one that can really um, bring home a, a, a light switch in your mind. It could really take you from, from where you are to a whole different you is give up the, the bickering and fighting and look to find ways to embrace Christians doesn't mean you agree with them. I have, I, I'll tell you what, as a Lutheran pastor, I have, um, 47 Patreons and I know they're not Lutheran and I know a lot of them are Baptist and Presbyterian and some come from non-denominationals and some are, you know, they're all over the range and I love every one of them and I can have fantastic conversations with each and every one of them. And I never have to fear about starting a fight with them. Because I know that even though I might differ or they might differ, we can just be like, oh, that's cool. Well, tell me what you think about it. Let's dig into it deeper. That's okay. All right. So we get to the second church for today as we break into the hour and five minute mark. 
congratulations you've lasted this long hopefully you'll stay with me for the next little bit here as we will wrap up this show uh we this text here is only a couple verses long so i think we'll move through it pretty quickly now that i feel like with this first church we got a good framework um out and we are going to move on so this is the church at smyrna smyrna it's a really interesting name there um and they write the words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. It's a reflection back here at verse uh, in chapter one that we read about with Jesus. Now, this is really kind of a neat little piece of information about this particular church. The Roman uh, proconsul urged his prisoners swear, and I will set thee at liberty, reproach Christ. I'll say that again. Swear. And I will set thee at liberty, reproach Christ. The prisoner was the aged bishop of the Asian city of Smyrna named Polycarp. The year is AD 154, exactly 60 years after John had delivered this message from Jesus to this church. Be faithful unto death, Jesus had urged, and I will give you the crown of life. And so Polycarp here is being um, pushed into renouncing Christ and he will be set free. And if he doesn't, he will be executed. Well, this is what Polycarp says. 86 years I have served Christ, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? With what refusal, or with that refusal, Polycarp is executed in public by burning. Having been faithful to the end and being certain of the promised crown of life, his obedience to the command Jesus gave to the church at uh, Smyrna. I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, and so you can all make fun of me later. (laughs) Uh, Reminds us that the book of Revelation is given to address the real needs of Christians facing adversity and the trials in the Apostles' Day, just as the situation affected believers today. So this church uh, actually receives the short, shortest of these seven messages yet it is filled with praise and without any criticism from our lord jesus's urgent letter to this church is dominated by his need to uh, prepare them for severe persecution drawing near i know your tribulation and your poverty but you are rich in the slander behold the devil is about to throw some of you into prison And so this letter is a little different than the rest. It doesn't have the same contextual framework as the others do. And that's why I said we'll kind of be able to walk through this one rather quickly. So this is a persecuted church. They endure a lot here. And so as we uh, start to understand here um, what it is that uh, they are experiencing, I bring up another line here. So, Really, what it's coming down to is this. The first Christians repeatedly suffered hardships when unbelieving Jews slandered them and turned public opinion against them. Believers frequently had to defend themselves before government government officials. And the why there's this quote-unquote synagogue of Satan is referred to that, the government officials. Such hostile unbelief is ultimately inspired by Satan. These individuals are to be tested and uh, they are going to suffer and be thrown into jail. So on one hand, Satan tempts us to become faithless. And on the other hand, the Lord also allows us to be tested. And there's plenty of scripture referencing there. Uh, but God never 
tempt, uh, but God never tempts anybody to sin. So the framework here um, symbolizes a short time, it's 10 days. It's just a like a 10 day period of testing is in Daniel uh, chapter one. So it could be a literal 10 days. It could be a figurative 10 days. It's just a framework of time use here. Um, and this, uh, and then they will not be hurt by the second death, which is the eternal separation from God, which is to be distinguished from physical death. So there's notes here on this, but we can, we covered immensely the topic of death earlier in this show series. So they will not be hurt by the second death. So that's the promise that we get. So really this is a letter to a church and I'll read it again. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but our synagogue is Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you are tested. And for the days you are uh, and for 10 days, you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the church or what the Spirit says to the churches. And so these individuals are going to face immense persecution. They are going to face uh, slander, and they are going to be hated for their faith by those who say they are Jews. And those who are in a synagogue of Satan, government officials, and all of these people who are going to come against this church. Jesus is rushing to write this letter to them, to reassure them, to establish that they will be kept in his hand. They may suffer death, but it is a period of testing and they will overcome that. He says it, be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. Now, difference relating between these two churches the first church we can look at and say there's a lot of context here that we can actually apply to us as well because it's a general application of not growing cold in our love this one is a little more pointed it has a little bit more direct context as it's aimed at this particular church however we can see that when we do face persecution and suffering that christ will hold on to us Are we promised a crown of life as these individuals at Shmirna were? Probably not. But I don't know. Maybe we are. That's a a question to kind of ponder around in our minds. Those who are conquerors will not be hurt by the second death. And so we don't have to deal with what the unbelievers and the slanderers and the fake prophets and teachers and all these individuals, those who reject Christ, we don't experience what they will. So Jesus promises this church, the crown of life. If it would faithfully endure the persecution, it was suffering in many parts of the world. The church is still undergoing persecutions today. And then there are the Christians who complain about being inconvenienced for their faith. In other cases, what matters is the surpassing greatness of the crown that Jesus will bestow on those who remain true. And so this was a particular note I pulled up. So potentially we could, if we are ones that suffer persecution, not the inconvenience of being kicked off Twitter or our social media page being silenced. That's not persecution. Persecution is people raiding your house, beating your family, killing your family, taking you, throwing you into prison and torturing you. That's persecution. 
getting kicked off Twitter. Nah, you're fine. You're a big boy. Pull up your, put your big boy pants on. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is going to wrap up this show. A long show again, and there are probably going to be long shows for this entire series. So buckle your seatbelt. We are doing hour plus shows, I think. And I think it turned out great. I think there's a lot of context we covered in these 20 some, or uh, what do we get? I don't know, 30 verses maybe today. We had a little bit more context uh, to cover today. And uh, um, what do we got? A nine. Just not looking back at my my notes here. Nine to twenty, so there's eleven, and then eleven twenty two verses. So this guy was all over the the board there, but uh, covered a lot of context. And we will um, pick back up and finish out chapter two and chapter three next week. And so we got a lot to go over, and we will be covering that more in depth in the remaining five letters to the churches and so ladies and gentlemen i hope that this show has been edifying and entertaining and uh, just growing you in faith and leading you more to christ as the victor because that is what we will be holding on to as we move ourselves through the series and um so this will drop on good friday so if you listen to it i wish you a good friday and a happy easter a happy resurrection day I pray that God will bless you in this weekend and show you faith that surpasses all knowledge and wisdom of the world and that you will just grow immensely deeper in your knowledge and walk with Christ this weekend. And may God bless you and your family. I will see you next week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.